The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. Our head of sales and partnerships, Shane Martin, is hosting this episode, and I know you are going to love it. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. In today's world, what do you think when someone wants more, a higher salary, what should they be negotiating? What should they be asking for? Absolutely. So first and foremost, you need to be clear why you need a a bigger salary. If you need a bigger salary because you just had an additional to the family or you want to buy in your car, that's the wrong reason for you to request a higher salary to begin with. If we're talking about increasing salary in a position that you currently are at, number one thing that I would recommend is see what is where your performance stand compared to other individuals in your department or maybe in your region. If you see yourself that you are at the top 10 or 15% and if you see yourself that you are doing a lot more than what the job requirement requires for you, that's when you actually gain a right to request a salary increase. If you're not performing, unfortunately, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you probably don't deserve a salary increase because let's just be honest, we have to think of it as a business perspective as well. If I have an employee that is in a medium average and it's an okay employee, I'm not going to give that employee a salary increase. But if it's my top performer that keeps bringing new clients, keeps meeting and hitting the metrics nonstop, I will more than happy give the top performer an increase in salary. So that's number one that a lot of employees have to also understand if we're talking internally. Wow. There, there was a lot there. So, you, so you're <laughs> saying I can't just walk up to my boss and just ask for a raise for no reason? No, I mean, you can be pretty and handsome, but unfortunately, that does not qualify you for a salary increase. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So what I'm hearing you say is that it's important to do your research on what other people are being paid for maybe a similar role with with the same amount of years of experience you have. But what if someone doesn't know or isn't comfortable asking their coworker how much they make? Well, that's perfectly fine. That's why there's a lot of data out there. Uh, Number one, I don't think it's also 
morally right for you to ask your coworker how much they make. Uh, there's laws of privacy in there, so nobody can just tell you flat out. But if you know for a fact that you are a great performer at your work, if you know for a fact that you deserve more, go ahead and do a little bit more research. I had actually a good friend of mine that they were requiring to get an increased salary. They did not want to move the look, want to move the workplace. They liked where they work, but they actually went ahead through the whole interviewing process with another company for the exact same position to see what the other company actually offers them. So they went all the way, all the way through the interviewing process to get an exact number because they thought they thought that the research data online was not giving them an exact number. And once they saw that there were, the other company was paying them about 18,000 more per year, they actually leveraged that brought it back to the current employee to get 20,000 more salary increase because they definitely want the the boss definitely wanted to keep them in their uh, in their business. So that's another way that people do it too if you're not very, you know, confident on research data, you can actually set an example by yourself and go through the whole process as well. Romina, this is this is fantastic. So you're basically saying someone went to explore other job opportunities, got offers and then went back to the current employer that they were at and ask for a raise. And that's really, really powerful. I think that what you're actually, what you're really saying is options give you power and they give you leverage. And so if someone uh, doesn't have, let's say another offer or doesn't have the time to put into another offer because they're working so hard at their current role, what, what does the perfect negotiation for a salary raise sound like? Yeah. So what I would suggest is making a mini portfolio. What does that look like is all the job duties that you have to do at your job, right? All your to-do list daily, but make a portfolio of all the extra activities or all the extra stuff that you have done. Once you've done the portfolio quarterly, I would recommend at least one quarter in it and itemize it and break it down. Say I did this month, I did X activity. This is the output. The This is the feedback from activity. This is how much production I was able to bring to the table or even just scheduling because I was able to use a new scheduling strategy. We're able to help with production and then logistically it saved us this much. So if you just do even for one quarter, build a small portfolio and ask to sit down with your boss and not necessarily threaten them to say, hey, I deserve a bigger salary, but you can sit down and say, hey, I just want to let you know, like, I really love this job to the point that I'm doing additional things. And I'm also taking outside education. I've taken X, Y, or Z courses online and I applied it to the job. And this is the portfolio of what I've been able to do for the company just within three months. I definitely think I deserve a bigger salary. I already have proven it. I would love for the money to be a bigger motivation for me in order for me to increase my knowledge, help the company even further. At this point, I think this is a win-win situation. So I'd definitely love to see a higher paycheck. What do you think about it? I mean, if my employee came to me and said that they've done all this, I don't mind giving them an increase. Amanda, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Kwame. Good to be here. Yes, it is great to have you. You came highly recommended. So I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I've been a journalist for 20 years and I write books. I spent most of my career writing for Time Magazine in different places. Um, and somewhere along the line, I'd say about five years ago, I started to just feel like journalism wasn't working. 
the way it was supposed to work. And that was deeply disturbing <laughs> because I'd kind of, you know, gone long on journalism in my life. It was part of my identity. It still is. It felt like journalism was really important, but it wasn't having the effect that journalists wanted to have. And so by that, I mean, uh, people distrusted the places that I was writing for about half the country actively distrusted the the places i was i was writing for and believe they were not telling the truth on purpose um no amount of facts and argumentation seemed to change people's minds when it came to politics in particular and it just felt like curiosity was dead and that's like my whole thing that's all i got <laughs> you know what i'm saying so uh, i went through this whole kind of midlife crisis about what uh, you know how to be useful in this hyper polarized time and uh, ended up totally transforming how I think about conflict by studying and learning from people who work in conflict differently than journalists. So this would be people like you, people who work in negotiation, people who work as psychologists, uh, people who do gang violence interruption, who um, work uh, as, as diplomats or rabbis or all kinds of people who understand conflict intimately, but very differently from, from journalists. Uh, so that's sort of my, that's, that's where we are right now. <laughs> that's how I got here. This is great. And so what we're going to do, audience, is we're going to have an, an open conversation. Um, speaking of curiosity, I'll just mobilize mine <laughs> and uh, we're going to dig deeply into your your experience and your perspective here and kind of break the typical flow of a, a standard episode. And so I think what would be interesting to do is explore that transformation that you had. So you said that you started to see conflict differently. Can you describe how you saw it before versus how you mm. see it now? Yeah, so forever since I was a baby journalist working for David Carr, who was my editor at Washington City Paper, I was a brilliant editor, a very generous, larger than life person. He and every editor told me you need conflict in every story. It was like just taken as a matter of fact. You need conflict, you need characters, right? That's what makes a good story is that tension. Um so I and I so I think, you know, I always figured I I was very comfortable with conflict that that's like my bread and butter, right? Is conflict. I covered crime. I covered, uh, I covered education, which actually had a lot of conflict. Um, I covered terrorism and disasters for many years. But then one day I was interviewing a woman who used to be a journalist covering politics on Capitol Hill and then became a conflict mediator. So totally changed her career. So she went from, you know, the belly of the beast covering Congress to trying to help people through conflict. So I asked her, what would you, let's say you were forced to go back to journalism, what would you do differently? And she said the most surprising thing. She said, I would go deeper into conflict. And I said, what? Because people are always, it seems like, you know, the public is always mad at journalists for doing too much conflict, right? So here she was telling me, no, 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 we're not doing enough. And she said the thing that she'd learned is that journalists often hover around conflict, right? And they sometimes inflame conflict intentionally or not. 
but they don't kind of go into it or get underneath it and try to really ask different questions and understand like what's really going on. Often it's like they're watching a tennis match, right? He said this and she said this and back and forth and back and forth. And then can you believe it? He said this and no, you're never really kind of getting to, um, you know, what, what you and your colleagues might call the interests, right? Um, you're just at the sort of position level. Do I have that right? Am I using the right? Absolutely. Um, so the things that, negotiation researchers have known for a long time, I'm not sure journalists always know. So journalists know a lot about fear and storytelling and emotion and those kinds of conflict emotions, but not a lot about how to get underneath the conflict and figure out what's really going on um, and about the psychology of human behavior in conflict. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. If you're interested in the story behind the business headlines, check out Big Technology Podcast, my weekly show that features in-depth interviews with CEOs, researchers, and reformers in business and technology. Hi. I'm Alex Kantrowitz. I'm a longtime journalist, CNBC contributor, and the host of the show. I empty my Rolodex every Wednesday to bring you awesome episodes. So go check out Big Technology Podcast. It's available on all podcast apps. We'd love to have you as a listener. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dre, thanks for coming back on the show, my friend. Uh, Thank you for having me back on, Kwame. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. So for the folks who didn't listen to your first episode, how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, Dre Baldwin, former nine-year professional athlete, author of uh, now 29 books. And I created this whole brand and philosophy called Work On Your Game. It's all about taking the mental tools to help you get to the top 1% in the sports world and translating those tools over to the business world in everyday life. So basically just taking the things that you need to succeed in sports, like discipline, confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative, and then showing business people, professionals, entrepreneurs, and of course, athletes, 
how you can leverage those tools off the court at work and in everyday life. And you know, to this day, and I stopped playing ball in 2015, most of the people I work with, most of my audience and clients are not athletes. So this stuff translates over directly. So that's what I've been doing for the last, really the last 10 years, but the last six years full time. That's fantastic. And based on your time in uh, as a professional athlete for, for nine years and now here working predominantly with the business world, what do you think it is about your message and your approach that resonates so strongly? The thing that people like the most, I think one thing that, of course, intrigues them is that this guy's a former athlete. You know, so being an athlete, that's unique, is different. Not too many people get to become professional athletes, but that is only that amount of attention you get for that is only going to last a little bit of time if you don't have any substance to go behind it. So once people hear me, you know, start explaining the work on your game philosophy and, oh, this guy has written books and, you know, he's done TED Talks and things like that. They're like, okay, well, he's a former athlete, but at the same time, there's some substance there. And I, they understand that I know how to translate what you learn in sports and how it can actually work directly in the business world. And once people see that I'm in the business world, then that's when I know really can get people's attention, especially the non athletes. So that's really what translates over once I'm able to know codify and explain it is just being able to communicate what you, what we do on the field or on the court and showing somebody who's never been on the field or on the court, how you can use it as well and how it works specifically for you. Absolutely. No, that's really cool. And I know, man, 29 books. I have written uh, one and I'm in the process of writing another. And uh, man, it is it's hard and not fun. So kudos to you, man, for, for sticking it through. But I, it goes back to what you talked about with discipline, right? And so uh, I, I know you're, uh, you have another one that just dropped. So can you tell the listeners about that one? Yeah, my newest one is called The Third Day, The Decision That Separates the Pros from the Amateurs. I actually got the hardcover right here. And this book is all about what you do in those moments when the newness has worn off. So it's just like someone starts a new job all right, the first or you start a new relationship or you're playing a new sport or you just got back into the gym because the gym was closed because of the pandemic. And now you're back in the gym. That first day you feel great. Right. It's a new thing. It's exciting. It's novel. It's unique. The second day is still pretty new. It's kind of like the new car smell is still there on the second day. But then by the third day. You realize like, man, this is going to be some actual work. This is an actual job. This is not all fun and games. I'm going to have to really you know, get my hands dirty here and really it's not as it's not as fun as it looked like from the outside when I was looking through the through the window. This is this is some real work that has to be done here. So the third day is not just the moment when something happens, but it's the decision that you make in the moment when you realize that there's some real work that needs to be done. What true professionals do is they show up and they do that work, whereas amateurs, they may not show up all the way or they might not show up at all when they realize that there's some real work that needs to be done there. So that's what the third day is about, is having that mental toughness and that discipline to keep showing up and delivering, even when you don't feel like showing up and you don't feel like delivering, doing it anyway. That's what makes a pro a pro. I love it. And when it comes down to it, all of us are, we're professional negotiators to a certain extent. And uh, on this show, we talk about negotiation being defined as any conversation you're having where somebody in the conversation wants something. So whether it's at home or at work with relationships and the business professional life, whatever it happens to be, we're all negotiating to a certain extent and we're professionals at it. Um, but a lot of times we act like amateurs <laughs> when the time, uh, when it matters the most. And so 
earlier when we were kind of game planning this, we were talking about how this whole third day philosophy translates to our relationships. Because at the beginning of relationships, whether it's a business relationship or a personal relationship, it's all um, puppy dogs and rainbows. And then at some point, things get a little bit tough. So let's let's dig into how this same philosophy applies to our relationships day to day. Sure. I mean, first of all, this is when a relationship becomes real. I mean, you remember the, the TV show, The Real World on MTV and what they say, this is what happens when people stop being polite and start being real. And a relationship becomes real when you hit that third day, because at the beginning of any relationship, even two people who just met, you're meeting people's representative, like they're being friendly, everybody's being nice. Eventually, it gets to the point where all right, people stop being nice and you really get to see that representative goes away and you get to see the real version of that person. And this is when you get a real relationship. It's not a real relationship till there's been some challenges. Like in professional sports, they say a series doesn't start till a team loses a game at home, right? There has to be some type of controversy has to occur for you to know you're in a real relationship because once you go through that challenge, then you're going to find out, is this person going to stick around? Are both people going to stick around or is somebody going to find the nearest exit because they can't deal with that controversy, that challenge. So that's the number one thing when it comes to relationships is that that has to happen in order for that relationship to really get solidified. And the other thing is in any type of relationship, because there is conflict, or that's actually something that can make the relationship stronger. Because when two people go through that conflict and they go through that disagreement, it's in that conflict resolution that they can both find out a little bit more about each other. Again, people aren't trying to be polite and be nice anymore. And people are being real with each other. And that's when you find out what somebody's really about, what they're really made of. You get to that third day. You get to that third day. I mean, there's a third day even when you're dealing with people, Kwame, is that at some point you're going to get past that, again, that nice version of that individual. And you're going to find out what they're, what are they really saying? What are they really about? What are they really bringing to the table here? And can I deal with that? That's when you're going to know. So those are just two things off the top when it comes to uh, relationships in the third day. Jay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Great. Um, I am a coach and an educator, and I work with individuals and organizations. I help people to leverage their body and their nervous system and their brain to show up as their best selves in the situations that matter to them most. Um, I often say that I help people to be themselves in other people's force fields. Oh, I like that. Okay. Dig deeper into that last line because that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I guess um, I've heard you say that you're a people pleaser as well, recovering people pleaser yes. here. And I know for me that my experience growing up and in my 20s and even my early 30s, my sense was if there was another person in front of me, it was all about what do they need from me? Who do I need to be? How do I need to show up? You know, and I would, it was, it was as if it was like my, my soul gets sucked out of me and I have no sense of myself, my opinions, my feelings, you know? Um, so what I mean by that, not losing yourself in other people's force fields is that I still get to have a sense of solidness of being here in a body of being impacted by what you say uh, of having needs, of having preferences, and being actually capable of tracking them and then communicating them or acting upon them. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that's a great segue into what we are here to talk about today. So, Jay, I'll give you the floor to, to set the stage. Right. Well, so we've, we've established that we're both psychology geeks, and we're going to nerd out a little bit on what is going on internally uh, when we're in difficult conversations or this the psychology of our own um, presence in, in life. Is it, did I get that and how absolutely. we discussed about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, this will be fun. This will be fun. Now, when it comes down to understanding your own psychology, especially in the context of these difficult conversations, whether it's work or personal, mm-hmm. what would you say are the most important things that people need to know? Well, it's interesting as you say that, I think maybe it's a little bit of talking about what I mean by psychology and, and self-awareness, because we have different kinds of self-awareness. And when we talk about psychology, we're usually talking about conceptual self-awareness, right? We're talking about like the inner dialogue that we have, the, the part of us that tells ourselves the story of what's happening. Oh man, you just messed that up. You probably should do that better next time. You know, that kind of the self-awareness of the dialogue and of the analyzing of how things went uh, projecting in our in our minds what's going to happen in the future. Most of us have that in spades, but there's also something called embodied self awareness. And embodied self awareness is the self experiencing the self. So you got conceptual self awareness over here. That is the self thinking about the self, narrating, telling story, analyzing. Embodied self awareness is the self experiencing the self. Things like Are your hands cool or warm? Are you sweating? Are you shaking? Are you tense? What's your energy level? What's your mood? Um, Do you have a headache? Are your pants too tight? (laughs) Like, (laughs) we're like, right? What is your actual experience in your body in the moment? And we don't pay enough attention to that in in our exchanges, in our awareness of ourselves. And that is a liability when it comes to showing up as our best self. This is fantastic. This is going to be a great interview. Okay. So (laughs) I'm thinking too, and you tell me if I'm off on this. Yeah. Um, So when we think about the way that the brain works, there's something called the default system. And I think simply put, you can think about it in terms of time travel. It thinks about what happened in the past, rumination, thinks about what happens in the future, um, often manifesting itself in worry or fear, something like that. Um, And um, so that sounds like what you're talking about with that first part, that consciousness. And then with the second part, that sounds almost more like mindfulness experiencing the moment as it's happening and tell me if i'm off at all on that too. no you're i think you're spot on and now i'm like oh this is fun we've got some dorks <laughs> hanging out um yeah so the you're right that default network is the the analyzing past and future and kind of the the narration of your own story and and you probably know this um that the that the less emotional resonance a person has had in their life, the less someone has validated how they're feeling on the inside and the more trauma they've experienced, the more toxic that inner dialogue gets to be and gets to, you know, like really start to constrain and, Ooh, that was, you messed up there, you know? So that's that kind of inner dialogue and how it either constrains or expands. And then you're right. The embodied piece is, more of what we'd think of in traditional mindfulness, though, 
I'm not a huge fan of that term in the sense of it tends to be full of mind. (laughs) (laughs) The way we think of mindfulness is usually very heady. And so I think of it in terms of embodiment. And I think embodiment is what we're talking about when we're talking about mindfulness, but it's like the, I call it mindfulness 2.0 is embodiment is, um, are you, are you in your body fully? And when you think about it, like um, some of the most mindful people I've ever been around are pretty heady. There isn't a a sense of presence to them. You think about a kid though, they're embodied, right? Like you can feel them and you can see them in their energy and how they move and how they feel. So you're not wrong in saying it's like mindfulness. And I think I'm just trying to like pull you along and say like, yeah. And I want to think of this as mindfulness 2.0, where it really isn't about you have to be in a narrow bandwidth of experience in order to be embodied. Does that make sense? What I'm saying there makes a lot of sense. And so yesterday when we chatted, I I told you I was reading uh, some of Carl Rogers uh, work, Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, he's one of the um, leaders in psychological history, um, big time advances when it comes to talk therapy and how that works. And one of the things that he brought up was his concept of the human organism and really mm-hmm. honoring the fact that essentially who you are as a body existing in the world. And so it's like, listen, if your body will feel things your body will experience things. And a lot of times we are not very attuned to what our body is feeling or experiencing. And that disassociation makes it more difficult for us to really honor what it is that we really want, because we're so caught up in that time travel of default thinking, thinking about the past and thinking about the future that we don't fully embody or exist in the present and, and honor ourselves as a human organism in the moment. Yeah. And to tag onto what you're saying there, what neuroscience research is now telling us is that conceptual self-awareness and embodied self-awareness offer us different resources and gifts. So one isn't worse or better than the other. They're just different. They light up different parts of the brain. And when we're in that embodied awareness of the human organism, we have more access to things like emotional regulation, um, the ability to more accurately read other people's facial expressions and tone of voice, um, more courage, uh, more uh, attunement with others, like all of these different skills that we would attribute to an awesome human being, they come from being in a body. They don't come from thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why in my, uh, it's on my website where I say like, if you Uh, could get to where you wanted to be by being smart, you'd already be there. Because this stuff isn't about being smart in a heady way. It's about knowing how to show up reliably in your body. Absolutely. And and think about it too, because you brought up a really good point. There's um, both of those pathways have their benefits and it's kind of like a hammer. A hammer is incredibly helpful if you're building something and, and right. you know, you have some nails around, but if I'm at a dinner table, it's of limited utility and might cause problems, right? Because Absolutely. when you think about the, 
one of the benefits of the human mind is that ability to time travel, to look back in the past, to learn from past experiences, to look into the future and for foreshadow and create strategies and, and think about contingencies. But at the same time, that is not as beneficial when it comes to really honoring the, let's say, for example, your emotional response in a, in a conversation. So I'll give an example here too. So I've been, I think it's important for everybody, just almost like a, like a personal trainer. We don't always know what our body needs. We talk to a personal trainer. We might not be injured, but Hey, let's talk to a personal trainer, right? That's why I think about therapy too. And so I've been feeling a bit down. Let's get some therapy, right? So I've been trying to honor that human experience. And for me, very cerebral, as you can tell. I'm always thinking all the time. And so sometimes strategic Kwame comes in when, when emotional Kwame is trying to speak up. And so I would push down that emotional response and people would say, Kwame, are you upset? And I'd deny it. And it's, and it's not necessarily so much that I'm lying to them, but I'm more lying to myself that I, should, I say, Kwame, as a professional in this moment, you shouldn't feel that way. But what I'm recognizing, I'm demoing it over the past couple of weeks, especially in the personal within the personal realm, saying, well, actually, you know, I am angry and I'm feeling angry because of this reason. And that's the impact it's having on me. And stating that has given me an opportunity to actually honor that emotional feeling. And then it doesn't plague me for the rest of the conversation. And now the other person is on notice and they don't take it personally. And so I just, I say it very calmly and very respectfully, not in an attacking way, just as a matter of fact, this is how I'm feeling. And now everybody can proceed with that knowledge. Will, thanks for joining us today. Kwame, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, we're excited to have you. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, so right now, uh, I work as a senior training manager for Index Exchange, a tech company. We help monetize the internet, essentially. Uh, I've worked in the L&D space for, gosh, a little over 15 years now, um, focused on sales, coaching, personal development, leadership development. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into a conversation with you on, uh, from really from a trainer perspective on uh, motivators and kind of how that can help with the negotiation process. And, and super excited to see you again. Yes, likewise, yeah. my friend. Yeah, it, it, so it's like uh, the, the roles have reversed this time because <laughs> the last time I was there training you and your team at DraftKings and now here you are training all of my audience here. I, I'm excited to, to give my, my folks an opportunity to hear from you. Full circle moment. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, today we are going to talk about a note, um, motivation as it relates to negotiation. And I think this is something that's so important, but uh, really not explored as much as it can or could or should be. So let's, let's just get an, an, an operational definition on the table. When we're th talking about motivation as it relates to negotiation, what does that mean to you? Sure. You know, I think, I think we've all had an experience, whether it's negotiating with somebody or even just trying to, to sell your idea, trying to, to get on the same page. And we've had a conversation where we go, hmm, that didn't go so well. <laughs> and then we've had those conversations where just immediately, you know, Kwame, you and I might get on the phone together, hop on a Zoom, and right away we're on the same radio frequency. You know, we're speaking the same language. Uh, and I might have delivered the same message to you and to the person who 
we're on different radio frequencies, different radio frequencies with, and you say, hmm, well, what worked in in that first conversation that didn't work in the second conversation? You know, maybe my my sales pitch, my idea w- was the same, but it was received two in two really different ways. Um, and so the idea of bringing motivators into the negotiation process says, um, if I can understand the values of the person opposite me, if I can understand and recognize what drives you, what excites you, what motivates you, what inspires you, and then if I can change my sales pitch, my product pitch, my idea pitch, to make sure that we're on the same page, you know, we're speaking the same language, we're on the same radio frequency, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have a really positive interaction that's going to be mutually beneficial for both parties, um, and hopefully we'll avoid those circumstances where you end that meeting or end that phone call and you go, hmm, it didn't go so well. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of times we make the mistake of, um, trying to use a one-size-fits-all approach to persuasion and negotiation and communication in general. Um, and again, what we're recognizing is that it takes a little bit of work <laughs> to motivate yeah. and persuade effectively. And so in order to start adjusting your approach appropriately, um, what would you say is the first step? Sure. Well, you know, I think the point you made there is worth repeating, putting in bold, <laughs> large fonts that, you know, a one-size-fits-all approach to, to anything um, is limiting. So uh, I wouldn't say it's wrong, but I, I would suggest that it's incomplete. Um, and we see that oftentimes with leaders will deliver a keynote or they'll have a team meeting or things like that. And it's me delivering my message to a variety of different people. And my message is going to resonate with people who are perhaps motivated by the same things that I'm motivated by. And there's going to be a percentage of the audience where maybe that message just isn't going to click. Uh, and that, that's just that's par for the course when you've got a, a format like that. Um, so really, I, I think part one is understanding that your sales pitch, your idea, um, your communication needs to be tailored to the person opposite you, no matter what, if it's, it's going to be complete. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and part two is to, to listen, um, to really listen to not just what people, um, are saying and how they're saying things, but to to keep an ear out for some key words, uh, for some key, key clues and drivers um, for the person opposite you. People will tell you who they are. Um, You've just got to pay enough attention to listen. Uh, So I'm a big believer that people will give you clues uh, all along the way. But if you pay close enough attention, you can use that information to craft a really well-rounded sales pitch, really well-crafted idea project pitch that'll land with just about anybody. Athol, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yes, likewise, my friend. I think it's very timely. Uh, So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, um, my uh, professional life has been probably in three different acts, I think. Act one, um, I I worked with the BBC as a journalist and uh, an executive on the news side, mainly on the television news side, for quite a long time. Act two... Uh, I worked in various businesses as a, as a change leader, as a director, transformation change leader. And then now in Act 3, hopefully hopefully not my final act, uh, 
Um, I sit on some boards as an advisor, but I'm also an executive coach, and you know I live and breathe um, how we're more effective as leaders in the corporate world. And wow, don't we face some challenges now as we hopefully come out of COVID and come out of lockdown. And the whole world of leadership and the whole world of work has been turned upside down. Absolutely. And you have a book that speaks to that too, right? Yeah. So take you way back to March 2020 when the pandemic began and we decided and one of the businesses I work in, Black Isle Group, we decided to set off on a project called Leaders in Lockdown. It ended up in this uh, book. So we followed 28 global business leaders through the pandemic, trying to find out, get insights into their leadership. You know, how did they survive? How did they help their businesses to survive? But probably the more relevant bit of it now is their insights into how the world will change because of what we've all been through. And that morphed into workshops that we've been doing all around the world with teams trying to help them lead out of lockdown, lead out of lockdown, how to come to terms with the, the many challenges that we now face in this next period, challenges that are different from what we've just been through, but uh, no less difficult to solve. Wow. So hybrid working, uh, remote working, how to be effective, how to lead remote teams, um, how to work with virtual teammates, what is hybrid working, all this kind of thing, and what kind of leadership is going to be more effective in the next bit. And we kind of start from the premise that COVID is exposed that an awful lot of what we were doing, whether it was in work or it was in society, has been exposed as being not fit for purpose, um, not fit for the future and probably um, not fit for the past. So I'm an, I'm an evangelist for change, change at work, change in society and changes in the way that leaders lead. This is great. Yeah. And, and to that point, that's what we're going to focus on what leadership looks like in this new world and communication and persuasion. What does that look like? And so for the listeners, so you have a little roadmap to follow. Um, these are the three things we're going to focus on. Number one, when it comes to working from home, what are the main communication challenges that we face? Number two, how do we cultivate trust and strengthen teamwork among virtual teammates? And then lastly, what kinds of leaders will succeed in this new world of work? So let's start off with number one. So for you, based on your experience and what you've seen, what are the biggest challenges that we face when it comes to communication, when it comes to this virtual world? Well, they're huge, aren't they? Because humans are basically programmed to communicate face-to-face, eye-to-eye. You know, all the stuff that we do about shadowing each other's body language, about picking up all these non-verbal cues, and they say that around about 70% of trust and sincerity really comes from the the verbal signals, sorry, from the visual signals uh, that we get from people. And uh, if we exist in this Zoom world, we take so much of that away, so much of that away. And then for creativity, 
for building trust, for working together. Um, we really kind of do that best when we're in the same room. Uh, and that's not happening now. And I think what you, what I certainly see in the, the many clients that we work with is that people coped out of necessity in the first six, nine, even 12 months of uh, lockdown and COVID. But they struggle. I think they struggle now. And uh, we're missing a lot of that face-to-face -face interaction. Shane, welcome to your own show, my co-host and head of sales at ANI. Thank you for joining us today, my friend. Hey, Kwame, it's great to be here, and thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, man, it's great to have you. And you, in this holiday season, you are coming with a gift. You have the gift of exciting news. Can you share it with the audience? Absolutely. Because of the tremendous work that the entire American Negotiation Institute team, including our customers, our friends, our family, we are excited to announce that our sales team is growing and we have multiple open positions. That's right, peeps. We are growing. It's really exciting. And so um, Shane is saying it very nicely, but I'll, I'll be a little bit more blunt. Uh, Shane is growing his army he is growing his army. And so, Shane, can you kind of outline your vision for your team and, and really what the role is and what they'll be doing? The vision for the sales team at American Negotiation Institute is to create a world-class sales team. And what that means is creating a team of people who are working together, rowing the boat in the same direction, who are striving to not only better themselves, but ultimately grow the overall company revenue to heights that we just have never reached before. So if you're a salesperson and you might be interested in looking or seeing what's available in the market, this episode's for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so everybody, I, I'm going to have to be a little bit um, arrogant on behalf of my, my friend Shane here right because Shane's a nice guy he's a humble guy but let me let me walk you through what happened so Shane started this year full-time in April and um, so last year 2020 that was our best year ever we doubled our revenue in 2020 uh, despite the, the pandemic and everything we grew and I was really excited and so Shane came in very ambitiously he negotiated his way onto the team and he said listen I you did very well but you can do even better and I he, he showed me some numbers. I was like, well, that seems really ambitious, but okay, if you think you can do it. And so, like I said, last year we doubled and this year Shane tripled us. And who knows, there's still a week left. <laughs> it might be quadruple if one of those last deals goes through. Yeah, we're going to quadruple. I love it. I love it. And so really what we've been seeing in, in what we do is exponential growth. And that's exciting. And we want a team um, on of, of really ambitious hustlers and sellers who can come in and continue that exponential growth. And so, Shane, from your perspective, what do you think are the things that have been driving that kind of growth for A&I? I mean, there's so many different things that are driving the growth for A&I, specifically in 2021. I think the first and foremost uh, biggest driver of what we do is because of the people who are ultimately driving and, and piloting the ship. The team here is incredible. 
Uh, the team here is ambitious. The team here has a ton of faith in, in what we're doing, and they believe in the mission of making difficult conversations easier. So if I had to boil it down to one specific thing that's driving our growth, it's a relentless team that has just an infinite amount of passion to change people's lives. And that's exactly what's happening at American Negotiation Institute. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's the thing. Everybody's bought in on that mission and we take it seriously. It's not, it's not, a, I don't see it as a goal per se. I see it more as a, like a mandate. <laughs> it is, it's our responsibility to share this message with the world as, as far and as wide as we can. We do that with the podcast, you, our YouTube, Forbes, our LinkedIn learning uh, content and all that stuff. But even now more than ever, we're doing it through sales. That's an integral part of our strategy. And so, Shane, when you think about your vision and where these specific um, new team members fit into that vision, what do you see them doing day to day and, and how can they help to promote what we do? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we see them doing day to day under the title of account executive, the title will be account executive of the new hires that we bring onto the sales team. And what their day to day looks like is three main things. One, first and foremost, servicing our current clients who are coming inbound to us and selling them essentially the best package for them. Two, it consists of a ton of emailing, calling, LinkedIn outreach to ultimately set meetings that will eventually drive revenue for the team. And then the third and, and the third and uh, arguably the most important thing that the new folks will be doing on the team is having a great time. In sales, you have to have fun and you have to create your fun because you know that you're dealing with so much rejection. So that's something that we prioritize here is not only uh, essentially focusing on driving revenue and growing and, and blitz scaling as fast as we can. But ultimately, if we're not having fun and enjoying what we're doing, then all of a sudden the numbers become less relevant. And so I know that if we focus on that, then the revenue and all the things will fall into place. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.